Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Today on Looking Forward, we're going to talk about trends in an industry that affects almost every one of us, no matter where we live. It's the supermarket industry. To help us do that, we have what I would call a Hall of Fame expert on that topic. He's also someone I had the pleasure to work with on some projects several years ago. Our guest is Phil Lempert. Known as the supermarket guru, Phil Lempert is a distinguished author and speaker. For more than 25 years, he has identified and explained impending trends to consumers and some of the most prestigious companies worldwide. Armed with this information, they are empowered by Phil to make educated purchasing and marketing decisions. For 25 plus years, Phil has served as Food Trends Editor and Correspondent for NBC News' Today Show, reporting on consumer trends and showcasing new products. He's also made regular appearances on ABC's The View, Fox Business, Dr. Oz, The Oprah Winfrey Show, 2020, CNN, CNBC, and Fox, as well as on local television morning and news programs throughout the country. For almost two decades, Phil hosted the syndicated show Shopping Smart on the WOR Radio Network. He now hosts the weekly podcast Lost in the Supermarket, and the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance's Farm Food Facts. Phil is also the founder and editor of The Lempert Report and SupermarketGuru.com and the founder and CEO of the Retail Dietitians Business Alliance. Hi, Phil. Welcome to Looking Forward. Hey, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on, on the show. I mean, you and I go back, uh, should I say decades? Yes, <laughs> decades. decades. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks a lot. And I certainly feel the same way. Phil, I know that you've been studying the food industry and supermarket trends for many, many years. There's those decades, many, many years. Can you tell us how did you first get interested in this and eventually make that your career? I know there's something that involves your family here. Yeah. So um, I was born into it. My grandfather was a dairy farmer. My father was a food manufacturer. And, uh, and basically, you know, went to Drexel in Philadelphia. Um, undergraduate degree is in marketing and retailing, uh, retail management. And there, there I was, just went to work in the family business and then evolved from there where my father and my grandfather were in the producing side. I wanted to take the editorial side. And my vision was really to be at the center of a triangle. Um, and each point of the triangle, one point is retailers, another one is consumers, another one is consumer products goods companies. And I saw myself in the center, trying to make sure that everybody fulfilled what the other one's needs were and knew what the other one was doing. So your interest was not really on the manufacturing side. Your interest was certainly on not on the farming side. end of it. 
Yeah, on the consumer side, really, because when when I go back to when I was in school, you know, most food advertising, with the exception of people like Kraft, people like with with big pockets, you know, their packaging was being produced by uh, the label company who who sold them labels, and they would do it free. There really wasn't any marketing or merchandising skill that was being done. And I saw that as a need. So I actually created an advertising agency that specialized in the food industry, both the retailer side as well as the consumer packaged goods. And then I started writing a paper newsletter called the Lemper Report. Sure. And I brought it, I was on the board of the American Association of Advertising Agencies and brought it to, to a meeting once. And Ken Roman, who was then the CEO of Ogilvy, uh, said, wow, this is really cool. This is really good. What are you doing with it? I said, well, you know, I send it to our clients because in the day-to-day process of advertising, I don't have a chance to just sit down and, you know, throw out ideas to them and and stuff like that. Not about their business, but about food in general and, and what was going on. And he said, you know, what you should do is put a price on it. And we did. We had put $195 a year for year subscription, which at that point was an enormous amount. Kiplinger letter was, I think, $19. Okay. And, you know, just started um, sending out some mailers to people and and things like that. And then Bill Dougherty from the New York Times, who is a world-famous advertising columnist, wrote about it, had seen a copy from uh, Marion... Burroughs, who worked at the New York Times as the food editor, okay. uh, because we started sending it to media for, uh, for no cost. And he called me up and he said, can I interview you? So I drove into New York, met with Dougherty. And in my office, I have this great article that Phil Dougherty wrote about my little agency in Belleville, New Jersey, <laughs> and the Lemper Report. And from there, practically overnight, we had hundreds of people who subscribed. So I then said, wow, there's something to this whole editorial side. And because of of my position on the 4As uh, board, was very fortunate that everybody was gobbling up other agencies, buying them out, and so on, was able to do that, and then just focused on the editorial side. And from the newsletter, Begot, um, being the food editor of of the Today Show, uh, doing a syndicated radio show uh, for WOR Radio Network, leading to different books that I've written, till here we are today. Yeah, it's an impressive story. And there are a couple of things you mentioned, Phil, that I wanted to comment on. One is the power of publicity, particularly when it's in a place like the New York times. Uh, That's amazing. And the second thing is, unlike quite a few people that I have spoken with on Looking Forward, you at least were in, I'll say, the right parking lot in terms of what you were going to do with your life. A lot of people end up doing things and doing them well, but they really didn't plan on doing them. You at least knew you were probably going to be involved in some capacity with the food industry. Right. Looking forward focuses on the future, but we like to step backwards a bit before we get up to present day and then looking out a little bit ahead. So I know this is a tough one for you to capsulize because we're talking about multiple decades here since you went to school and got involved in the industry. But if you had to highlight some of the key developments that have occurred 
over the last few decades in the supermarket industry, if I call that an industry or the food industry, what would they be? Could you describe a little bit the, the key points in the evolution over that period of time, Phil? Sure. So what's happened? Certainly the UPC code um, was one of the most significant factors um, in supermarketing. It allowed for, for more data, even though a lot of supermarkets weren't using that data. And to be honest with you, a lot of supermarkets don't use data well today um, either, but, but that's changing. I think that the understanding of consumers, uh, both from a consumer packaged goods standpoint, as well as from a supermarket standpoint, was probably the second most important thing that happened. It was no longer that I could make a TV dinner efficiently, cost-wise, have it sit in the freezer and somebody brings it home and puts it in the oven. It was now listening to what consumers wanted, what their choices were that, you know, maybe they didn't want turkey with brown gravy and, and peas and mashed potatoes, but they wanted something else. So that was probably number two. Number three was the microwave. The microwave changed the supermarket, changed the way consumers eat probably more than any other device, household device than we have. Um, we wow. wanted things quicker. We wanted things uh, tastier. We wanted all those things. And, and the microwave could do that very efficiently for us. Now, in looking back at some of the original ingredients that were in those TV dinners and those microwaves products uh, leads to number four, which is the consumer finally waking up and realizing that there's a connection with being healthy and eating healthy and understanding that having better nutritional profiles, having more uh, clean ingredients, having less ingredients in products was really important. So, you know, we've, we've come up with a lot of tactics and tools to reinforce those points, whether it's faster trucking, whether it's better refrigeration, what, but those are tactics. But, but these, in my opinion, are really the time points that have really changed the food world, both on the supermarket side and the manufacturing of food. That's a great summary. And you hit on four really important changes or developments, Phil. One thing I want to mention sort of as an aside that relates to the first area you talked about, which was the scanning, is in 1988, I went to work for a company with my focus on marketing to the older adult that was owned by Information Resources Incorporated, IRI. And yeah. were they not among one of the, the leaders? I don't know if they're still even around, but weren't they oh, one yeah. of the leaders? Yeah, they're, they're still around. They're still doing great. So for those who might not be familiar with IRI, there's two major companies uh, that are data providers, IRI and Nielsen in the supermarket world. And what they do is they track sales of products by the UPC code by at, at down to store level. So it allows manufacturers to purchase that data to see what's the mix of products that a particular store, a particular zip code or geography has. Um, and it's lot, a lot more sophisticated now than ever before, where they're actually able to add insights on top of just reporting the data and, and being able to say, okay, in, in my Crystal ball, what I'm noticing is that people are buying over the past two years, I'm making this up, people have gravitated from Chinese food to Italian food to Asian food to whatever. And based on that path, 
we believe that the next big trend will be blank food. So, so they've really added a lot more insights to that data than they've ever had before. Yeah. And just to add to what you said, back in the, I would say, early 90s, Phil, if not late 80s, I went with another guy who worked for IRI in my office, and he had me make a presentation to Campbell's Foods about the older market based on the data that he was bringing to them. So it resonates very well with me. Now, what have been the biggest changes that you think have been brought about in the world of grocery shopping and supermarkets by the pandemic? And also, if you could layer onto that, and you may want to add this on later too, Phil, the global impact, because I know you also do work globally. There may be some differences. It may be all the same as far as you know. But if you could just talk about COVID, how's it affecting the supermarket industry, the food industry here, and perhaps Canada and elsewhere? One word, fear. For the first time in our lives, we walked into supermarkets and we saw empty shelves. We panicked. We panicked, bought. First time we're seeing people in, in masks behind plexiglass barriers, having to social distance, uh, having to keep the capacity of a supermarket down to about 30%. Uh, this is all based on fear. Turning on the TV and being able to see dairy people in Wisconsin dumping milk uh, because they didn't have trucks to bring the milk to market, looking at farms where they're plowing under their food. People are still very, very afraid. We've opened up the supply chain to the average shopper. They never knew what a supply chain was. They see how broken it is. We hear about the meatpacking facilities that are not very different than Upton Sinclair wrote about in the jungle in 1906, where you have people shoulder to shoulder butchering meat. I mean, this is 2021. That should be all robots. That, That should be robotic. There shouldn't be a human being in there. Uh, We've discovered that there are people in these factories, uh, in meat processing in particular, that are making under $8 an hour. You know, it's it's fear. That that is what the pandemic has created for the food industry. And, And now, you know, supermarkets and manufacturers are trying to rebuild that to compensate for that fear. They weren't prepared for this. We've always gravitated toward just-in-time delivery so that, you know, when you pick that last apple, um, a computer is told the store manager, you know, order another apple. So so you're never out, but your back room is not full of products. Well, we're going to go back uh, a bit uh, because it was very fragile. I can't, um, in my local supermarket, just up the block from here, they still don't have Charmin toilet paper. Um, And they had it for a little bit. But they don't, again, um, we ran out of baker's yeast. We ran out of baking products as people gravitated to making more food at home, whether it was with their family or by themselves. Uh, We're seeing more and more stories by the day of manufacturers who are cutting their assortment. Progresso went from 88 different varieties of canned soup down to about 40. And the one thing that the CEO said, which was fascinating, I mean, they did it 
to improve their supply chain, is he discovered, and he never realized it, they had 27 varieties of a combination of chicken and noodle soups. <laughs> we don't need 27 varieties. <laughs> and, and what supermarkets have been doing for probably the past five years is really looking at some outliers like Aldi, where traditional supermarket has about 100 different brands of olive oil, varieties of olive oil on their shelf. Aldi has four. Mm. And, you know, they've got a general purpose one, they've got an organic one, they've got an extra virgin one, and then they've got a specialty one that comes from a distinct part in Italy that, that makes it probably among the best olive oils in the world. So we, we have to look at this world through a very different lens. We have created a food industry, and good for us for doing this, that we have the cheapest food supply in the world. It's always been about production. How do we make the meat cheaper? How do we do this cheaper? How do we do this cheaper? Well, now, especially with Generation Z and millennials, they're very food involved. They don't look for, for cheap. Uh, they want value and they want quality. And that's why um, one of the primary uh, shopper segments at Aldi are millennials and Generation Z, mm. because 96% of everything in the store is their own brand. And they've got very high quality standards. But because of efficiency, because when you look at their shelves, it's in a tray. They don't have to have the labor of somebody taking cans, 24 cans out of a box to put it on the shelf. They just take the tray and put it on the shelf and they've saved the fortune and labor. Mm. That's the way we need to think. Isn't that interesting? And along those lines, Phil, I think you touched on this briefly there. Again, we're speaking about right now, right now, hopefully we'll be looking back at it soon. What about cooking? I think you suggested this. Are people cooking more? Yeah, no. they've just, they're not cooking more. No, they were cooking more. In the they beginning, were. Um, okay, in the but beginning not of the now. Pandemic, they're not cooking more now. Correct. Uh, the okay. beginning of the pandemic, what happened is, as I mentioned, we're staying at home. We're staying at home with our kids. We're looking for things to do. You know, we're bored. So, <laughs> hey, yeah, cooking, it's going to be a fun family experience. Okay. Well, what we found out yeah. is that, um, number one, it wasn't so much fun. Yeah. Uh, number two is we didn't have the Clorox wipes to clean up. <laughs> and you have to clean up after cooking. So now we've moved into the next iteration, which is we are preparing foods at home. And that could be from the frozen food case that we microwave. It could be a frozen pizza. It could be a freshly prepared uh, dinner uh, from the supermarket that we bring home and we reheat. So we're, we're now into the preparing stage of things. And also, um, I, I was just on a call with a convenience store operator. What we're seeing is a lot more people going to convenience stores be, like Wawa because they're smaller, um, because they have now fresh foods. Wawa has a terrific program as it relates to fresh foods, probably you know, second to none in, in the country. Uh, prepared food. They, they just opened up uh, a couple days ago, the first drive-through and takeout Wawa outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. There's no store. They have 33 employees inside, but it's all a drive-through and takeout, and they can do 12 cars at once. So we're, we're seeing people reimagine based on the way people are eating. I happen to want to support my local restaurants that here in Southern California are closed except for takeout. But I got to tell you something, Jeff, what really bugs me is I go there to take it out. The food is good. By the time I get it home, guess what? It's cold. 
So I have to either microwave it or reheat it or do something with it, which means it's now being cooked twice. So it's yeah. not as good. Yeah. So if I can go into the frozen food case and I can get a, um, a, a delicious Stouffer's mac and cheese that I can just microwave or put in the oven and it comes out piping hot and ready for me to eat, I'm going to go that route. Yeah. And we should mention to people that Wawa is on the East Coast. They go down to Florida. I don't know how far to the West they go. You, you may I think just Ohio, but I'm not just sure. Ohio. So our people who live West of Ohio may not have heard of Wawa, but they're a very successful chain. Early on in this pandemic, I'm talking March, April, I found myself struggling to figure out where am I going to get my food? When am I going to get my food? How do I get to make a reservation to be able to drive to pick up my food? And I started considering, I never did go through with this, the prepared meals that would be shipped to me by this plethora of companies that are doing that. Yeah. What have you seen happen in that space? Death. Blue Apron is, I think they went through one bankruptcy, about ready to do another bankruptcy. Here's, here's the problem. When you really think about it, you're, you're wanting to appeal to you know, an upscale audience that wants to prepare the food at home. But the biggest problem was that everything comes packaged. So I have a little bit of salt, it comes in a little plastic thing. I have sauce, it comes in another plastic thing. So what we heard from consumers is I want to do right. This looks like fun, but I don't want to ship FedEx with um, dry ice and, and all this packaging. That is, is hurting the planet. And their target market for this was a very societal-based consumer that cares about the planet, that cares about sustainability. So it was doomed to fail from, from day one. Now, what's happened is some of the companies have been bought by retailers like Kroger, and they've incorporated it in the store. So what you have now as a meal kit is something very different. They're not giving you the salt, and they're not giving you the ketchup. They know you have that. They're, they're putting it in a paper bag. Um, so you just come in the store, you pick it up, or you have it delivered now. So the meal kit idea has evolved into something that's, I think, long-term, you know, has a future and is better. But let's remember the way Meal Kit started was out of a company whose name I don't even remember. And it wasn't that long ago. I want to say it was about 10 years ago. And they were up to about 10,000 of these meal preparation centers that were in shopping centers. And what you would do is you would go and make a reservation. You could even have a party. You could go by yourself. You could uh, do it with friends. You pick the menu items or, or the dishes that you want. And then there were these large steam tables and these large uh, refrigerated tables like you would find in the back of a restaurant. And you would then go and pick all those ingredients yourself, put it in there. They had, you know, take a scoop of this and take two scoops of this and do all that stuff and then cook it right there. And then eat it right there with your friends that you had this as an event. Yeah. I believe that there's one meal preparation center left oh, wow. in the country. There was actually a, a trade association for them. They've gotten up to 10,000. This one, I believe, is in either Parsippany or Whippany, New Jersey. So it, it's all this evolution. Our job, especially when we look at you know future forward and, and, and we look at what we want to be, our job, Jeff, you and me and everybody who's listening to this, is to see something that's interesting and build on it. 
and it's a never ending task. So right. somebody saw that meal preparation center and said, this is stupid. You know, people, people are going to go once a year for a birthday. What can I do to make this better? So people go and they use it once a week. And then somebody else looking at that saying, well, all the packaging, all that. you know, how, how do we make it better? Okay. We're going to bring it in store where there are culinarians behind the deli. They're cooking things and, and they're going to make it for them. And it's really going to be healthy and it's really going to be quick and it's going to be less expensive. In Chicago, we've got Dominic's that sells two meals for $7.99 this way. When you went to Blue Apron and stuff, and you might remember the, the TV commercials, they were always giving away $30 yeah. to, to get you hooked. Yeah. Well, then, then the next company gave you $30 and the next company gave you. So nobody was ever making money on this because they were just trying to buy customers and customers did do it once. And then they looked around the packaging. They looked around the mess. They looked at all this and said, you know, it's Stouffer's for me. Wow, this is fascinating. I have to say you reminded me or maybe you planted the thought in my brain. Planted is probably a good word here, Phil, that behind every failure or at least a lot of failures is the seed or are the seeds of many great ideas. Yes. So creativity look, and imagination play such important roles. Look at, look at our iPhones that we can't live without. You yeah. know, uh, it was a Newton. Yeah. That's where the iPhone started when, uh, and I can't remember his last name, the guy that came from Pepsi to run Apple that threw jobs out, he wanted to do a, a handheld device. And then Palm built on that. And then the iPhone built on that. And then we're seeing more and more new technologies all the time. Yes. So our job is, is to keep our eyes open in the food space. And, you know, don't expect tomorrow's consumer to be the same as today's consumer. Exactly. Because they are going to be different. They're going to have yes. different tastes. We've got a generation, millennials, generation Z, um, generation zero, who have grown up with handheld devices. For us, we had to acquire that knowledge, that talent to yeah. use them to become part of our lives. For them, it's second nature. That's how they're ordering food. Yeah. So if they're going to go to Chili's, pre-COVID, they order on their phone before they get to Chili's because they don't want to have to wait for the waiter to come over with the chips. They just want it there. They think very differently than we do. We want to have an experience. They want to eat with their friends. So, you know, it, it's different. Yeah, very much so. Can you comment quickly at the moment, Phil, on globally outside of the U.S.? Is this pretty much similar to what's happening elsewhere? Yes, it is. Um, what we started to see in the in the beginning stages of the pandemic were a lot of people, and this started globally, in fact, this started in Europe, were moving away from the soaps and health and beauty aids that were more natural. And they gravitated back to the P&G model of uh, petrochemicals that would kill anything. <laughs> uh, that that's where where we went. I think now we're pulling back a little bit, uh, not a lot. We still only want to buy things that are kills ninety nine point nine nine percent of bacteria. It says right. kills COVID nineteen on it and things like that. But what we will see is we'll, we will see innovation happen from those more sustainable companies to, to increase their efficacy on killing bacteria and killing flus and viruses. Um, that's one example of what's happened globally. Uh, the same thing that's happening with health and wellness. In France, it was part of a government agency that created an app that could help you order healthier food. 
food. And that has uh, transferred into a, a UK-based company by the name of Spoon Guru. Um, who has created that for supermarkets. So when you go shopping online, you can create up to 144 different uh, sectors. I can say I want gluten-free, I want vegan, I want kosher, I want halal, whatever those aspects are. I want a keto diet, you know, and that will only show you on their website from those 40,000 plus products that they have. It might only show you 2000, but they're personalized for you. And that's where we're moving in food where it's personalized nutrition. Uh, I happen to be a big believer in DNA testing for food. So there's a company in San Francisco called Viome and you take a test um, and, and it's about gut health. And they then give you two 100-page reports. One is about your uh, DNA and how it relates to your diet. And the other one is all the foods you should eat. Now, they just started doing precision supplements. So here's my precision supplements. And you could probably see my name. I know everybody else can't, but yeah. we're on Zoom today. Yeah, I do. That it's right there. That This supplement, and I take uh, four in the morning and four in the afternoon, was based on my DNA. That's amazing. And Viome is out of the U.S. It didn't come from another country. It was Correct. Viome uh, was started in the U.S. in San Francisco, and they actually bought Habit, which is another company which was doing something similar. The difference was with Viome, it uses a stool sample. With uh, Habit, you actually had to drink three different drinks and then um, pinprick your finger and, and give a blood sample after you drank. So with Viome, it's really precision nutrition. So they take my DNA and basically they prescribe supplements that are ideally suited for my gut health. Okay. That leads us into the question, Phil, of what might you project will happen going forward post-COVID in terms of changes we might see in the supermarket industry, food service, et cetera? Over the next, say, five or so years, I know things evolve quickly. Let me give you an analogy first. And the analogy is we always keep on hearing how technology, you know, ramps up quickly that it took, you know, 2000 years to do this. And now it takes five seconds to do this, (laughs) stuff like that. We are at that point in the supermarket industry. Because of the pandemic, because of COVID-19, supermarkets are going to change dramatically and quickly. I'll give you six months out. (laughs) Um, And and the reason is that things are moving quickly, as I said before, faster than ever before. Yeah. You're going to go online and you're going to make a reservation to go to that supermarket. Um, Wednesday, 7 p.m. You're then going to be taken to their website which is a much better website than it is now. And you're going to buy all those unemotional cans, jars, and boxes, those brand names that we can't live without. The supermarket is going to be cut in half. Average supermarket is 40,000 square foot. That back 20,000 square foot is going to be a micro-fulfillment center that is run by robots. And they're going to be picking all those groceries that you ordered online. The front half of the store, where you made the reservation, is going to be all the fresh foods. If you look at the complaints that we have about food delivery, whether it's Instacart or Shipped or anybody else, number one is produce. Number two is meat. We want to buy those products ourselves. I don't have to have a shopping list of 23, 25 products 
and walk past 40,000 products in order to acquire those. It's very inefficient. And this is something I've been talking about for probably about three years, pre-COVID. And I was talking about it happening probably in 2025. Now it's gonna happen within the next six to eight months. And that's gonna change the way we shop, how we shop. It's not gonna be a scary place anymore. We're not gonna be fearful because of technology. We're gonna be able to properly social distance. We're gonna be able to keep the right amount of people in the store and just make that shopping experience go from on average 22 minutes 2.3 times a week that we bought food to probably 15 minutes once a week. So it's really going to be dramatically different than our shopping experiences now. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think it's going to bring enjoyment back to eating food. Wow. Quick follow-up question. Will some supermarket chains survive and some not? I'm thinking of uh, like Trader Joe's and Wegmans and the other ones that you've mentioned previously. Will some make it and some not make it? Yes, some will make it, some will not make it, but the ones that won't make it are going to be selling out to Jeff Bezos at Amazon. <laughs> so the Amazon brick and mortar fresh stores can accelerate to that level of 2000 that we keep on hearing them talk about. And that's going to happen very quickly. Wow. Okay, that's fascinating. Is this creating any jobs or opportunities for students graduating as you did from Drexel or those who are displaced from the supermarket world? How does this play out in terms of jobs and opportunities? I think when we look at jobs, the jobs are different and the skill sets are different. And for some people, it's going to mean early retirement. For other people, it will mean retraining, depending on how old they are. And, and what skills they have. Uh, the bottom line is there are certain sectors where we need human beings, and there are other sectors where we don't. We need robots. For example, the, the problem that we talked about before with the supply chain, a lot of it had to do with transportation. We don't have enough truck drivers in the U.S. They are retiring. Uh, they're not able to make the money they used to make because now by law, they can't drive the number of hours that they used to drive without taking a break. Uh, so they're making less money. And now we're hearing on the radio, these trucking companies where they're saying, you know, come to us, we're going to guarantee you, you're making $90,000 being a truck driver. We've got all these benefits. We've got all this stuff. So yes, we are going to see some opportunities, but frankly, we're probably going to see more job losses than new jobs being created because of the need, the physical food safety aspect of using robots. Do packaged foods play a role in job loss or creation? Food manufacturers, do they play any role? On the manufacturing side, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But because of the new way that we're going to be shopping, we need more communication experts. We need more merchandising experts. We need more marketing experts to really help identify the consumer and how we're going to communicate our brand's image to that consumer. So it's going to take a lot more work because, you know, if you're Campbell Soup and right now, you know, you're on ShopRite's website with just a picture of your can of soup, that's not going to cut it. What you need to do is you really need to merchandise very differently in the online experience and really tell a story and maybe have videos up there of, of how you make cream of mushroom soup with noodles, <laughs> which is what I lived on uh, at Drexel when I wasn't going to Wawa. <laughs> That's fascinating. This And it's going to happen quickly. It's going to happen very quickly. Yes. Phil, last thing. This has been wonderful. I appreciate it greatly. I agree. Thank you. And I just want to ask you if you could please share with our audience 
how they can find out more about the Lamper Report, your books, about your speaking engagements. I know you do a lot of that. And anything else that you're involved with? It's really simple. Supermarketguru.com. And also, uh, we have another division which helps retail dietitians that are employed by supermarkets. And that website is retaildietitians.com. And my email address is on there, links to our Facebook, all of our social media. So I would invite all of your listeners to reach out and ask me questions. I'll be happy to answer and send them to Jeff too, so he can answer them right here. Absolutely. And just to clarify, it was supermarket guru, one word, supermarketguru.com. Okay, excellent. Phil, again, thanks a million. Thank you, Jay. Appreciate it greatly. And let's not wait 20 years to do it again. I agree. You take care. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.